out the window with the Draco fully loaded Planning how to rob Jeff Bezos How much is one trillion when converted into pesos Turn half into Naira, I got family in Lagos Contemplating on which plans gon' pay most We want the bacon business and the huevos The queso, the banknotes Go by the caseloads Take those, we want the whole motherfucking payroll Poverty is violence Policy is silence Robbery is science As the Carnegie's and Heinz's Everyone's compliant when you market in the tyrant Imagine trying to live inside the carcass of a giant The harshness of the climate makes us heartless and defiant The hardships and the bias just compartments of the riots Footsteps echo through the darkness and the quiet Better have steady hands when you targeting Goliath Put the bullet in the chamber, spin the barrel, feel the danger I can't make it any plainer, you gon' pay us for our labor I don't need no white savior just to find my behavior We them animals you made us better call brother Nature. Since my granddaddy built it, can I burn every acre, every fern till it's vapor till they learn it's the wager? Tell the governor and mayor if my brother is in danger by a major, I'll be swinging like Steven on the Indiana Pacers. Check the laser sight, somebody better pray tonight, but not to that Caucasian Christ. Jesus had dreads, the same pigs that killed Brianna, put thorns on his head for a public execution. We need fucking retribution. You can call a million cops, but you can't arrest the movement. Got that tech up to Jeff. Welcome to the revolution. To clear any confusion, we here for redistribution. And for everything we suffered, that ain't even restitution. 13 billion a day, shit was looting. Why niggas making minimum wage? Shit, we were cooping. He peeing down his legs, shit, that's karma reproducing. Cause his workers pissed themselves just to keep his product moving. Facing two pandemics, that's beyond fuck. We already being killed, nigga, we gon' buck. See, I was taught do for self, being freeze on us. Grab the cash, now let's get that nigga Elon Musk. Looking out the window with the Draco fully loaded Planning how to rob Jeff Bezos How much is one trillion when converted into pesos Turn half into Naira, I got family in Lagos Contemplating on which plans gon' pay most We want the bacon business and the huevos The queso, the banknotes Go by the caseloads Take those, we want the whole motherfucking payroll And that was the brand new track by Jasiri X called Rob Jeff Bezos. Poverty is violence. Policy is silence. Robbery is science. Ask the Carnegie's and Heinz's and ask Jeff Bezos. But don't ask any of them if you want to get a straight answer. Jasiri X released that track on Black Friday, one of Amazon's biggest and busiest days of the year. Welcome to Polyrical, a podcast of political music, a soundtrack for the resistance, a topical solution for the political revolution. I want to hear from you, so if you like what you hear, or even if you don't, you can head over to polyrical.com, find a link there to send an email, you'll also find a link there to recommend a song, a topic, or an artist for a future episode, 
And you'll find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. Here is Kevin Devine with Freddie Gray Blues. This is from the album Talk Minus Action Equals Zero, a compilation benefiting Black Lives Matter. bring us to our topic of the episode. The topic of the episode for this episode is Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, uh, her reign of terror has been uh, 
effectively over for a very long time, and Margaret Thatcher is deceased, but the implications of the policies of Thatcher do plague us to today. Um, but the reason that I kind of prompted me to look up some Margaret Thatcher songs and uh, do a Margaret Thatcher episode is because a new statue is being unveiled shortly of Margaret Thatcher. And in this day and age, I guess they just like putting up targets for others to tear down. This, I think, seems like a, a good target for that. Um, here's a, an article from metro.co.uk. A council is set today to approve spending £100,000 on the revelation of a monument of the Iron Lady. It'll be placed on a 10-foot plinth to prevent vandalism. But people have figured out a way to make their statement despite the plinth and have planned an egg-throwing contest. More than 11,000 people have said they were interested in participating on Facebook, with 2,100 confirming they would attend. If Kesteven District Council in Lincolnshire votes to go ahead with the expensive reveal, it'll be another £100,000 on top of the £300,000 it costs for sculptor Douglas Jannings to make the bronze statue. The structure of the country's first woman prime minister who was born and raised in Grantham would be 20 feet tall in total. But many people have reacted with anger over the spending during a time of such national hardship. The host of the egg-throwing event, Cass Arif, posted on the page encouraging people to donate money to different charitable causes and promised the quote, biggest donation gets first throw on the day. And this statue won't be the first statue of Margaret Thatcher out there in the public. There's even one down on the Falkland Islands, which uh, Margaret Thatcher went to war with Argentina over control of back during her days. Here's a, a piece, a little bit of a piece from Hrag Vartanian, po uh, posted on hyperallergenic.com. When I was in London last January, I had the chance to visit a hidden gem. Well, depending on how you define gem, of a sculpture in the Guildhall Art Gallery in central London. Neil Simmons' marble likeness of former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher has a very pretentious, as you might expect, name. Quote, Right Honorable the Baroness Thatcher of Kesteven, L-G-O-M-F-R-S. And it sits in the corner of this small art museum with an excellent collection of pre-Raphaelite painting. Why such an important, if controversial, figure in contemporary Britain would be tucked into the corner of the city's official art gallery is an interesting story, as it wasn't always the case. On July 3, 2002, theater producer Paul Kelleher, at the time 37, decapitated the eight-foot marble statue of the former British Prime Minister, which was once more prominently displayed at the Guildhall Art Gallery. He swung at the statue with a cricket bat concealed in his trousers, then used one of the heavy metal poles that are used to support the rope cordon to decapitate the statue. After the beheading, he waited for the police to arrive.
Afterwards, Kelleher explained his crime. Quote, I haven't really hurt anybody. It's just a statue, an idol we seem to be worshipping to a greater extent. He later explained his defense involved his, quote, artistic expression and my right to interact with this broken world. From the compilation album Celebrating Subversion, the Anti-Capitalist Roadshow, here is Grace Petrie with Maggie Thatcher's Dream. I could forgive you if you thought You've been sold sure I'm a bad investment of the RBS sort Working around the clock To try and raise my stock Do you regret getting in my boat When we're trying to stay afloat And I've the buoyancy of a northern rock When I looked at the big picture, saw the rich getting richer When I tried to play the long game, I was on the losing team Can I be so middle class and still end up on my ass? Is this an economic nightmare or just Maggie Thatcher's dream? There's not enough money in the bank Not enough petrol in the tank When this month's overdraft fees are gonna bring me to my knees I got the city boys' bonuses to thank Another charge to the list Another direct debit miss When the latest petrol prices fuel my private credit crisis So I know this ain't no way to exist But when I looked at the big picture Saw the rich getting richer When I tried to play the long game I was on the losing team Does my whole life just amount To what's in my bank account? Is this my credit rating nightmare Or just a capitalist dream? When greed and ambition went and formed a coalition No such thing as big society and no one on my team When there's no one left to vote for, are we all in the same boat? Or is that just a crazy optimist singing Socialism's dream And I know you'd live with me, my darling, in a cardboard box But I'd rather build You a castle with doors and locks Something to own, something to call our home Foundations made of stone And I almost had it, you know But when I looked at the big picture Saw the rich getting richer When I tried to play the long game I was on the losing team Can I be so middle class When I can't afford the gas Is this my economic nightmare Or just Maggie Thatcher's dream
album how magnets work that was boy nun boy nun with margaret thatcher here's a piece written by morris m published at grunge.com she's one of the greatest world leaders of all time margaret thatcher was the iron lady who ran britain from 1979 to 1990 a period in which she defined a generation On the world stage, she was renowned for her close friendship with Ronald Reagan and for standing up to the Soviet Union. At home, she was the free market conservative who liberated Britain from a decade of economic stagnation, even as she smashed glass ceilings that had once been marked, No Women Shall Rise Beyond This Point. One of the few British leaders just about everyone on earth can name. She's often voted the greatest prime minister of all time, beating out even Winston Churchill. But this isn't the whole story. You know how in The Wizard of Oz, the wizard looks all great and powerful from afar, only to be revealed as a weak nobody 
on closer inspection, you can do similar things with Margaret Thatcher's legacy. From the vantage point of the 21st century, it can appear all shiny and radiant. But examine it closer, and it starts to seem like the only thing behind the Iron Curtain is a litany of disastrous choices. Here are the most disastrous of all. In the aftermath of World War II, the Labour government had a minor crisis on its hands. Huge swaths of the British population were growing up undernourished, a fact that ongoing rationing really wasn't helping. So they came up with a simple solution. From then on, every school-aged child would receive a free glass of milk every weekday. It was a cheap, popular policy. So popular, in fact, that when Margaret Thatcher cancelled it in 1971, it caused an outcry. The Independent has the story. 1971 was a year of Ted's health, Ted Heath's conservative government, which was trying to make huge savings to the budget. At the time, Thatcher was the education secretary, her first major political role. Trying to trim back spending in her department, she ended the milk subsidies for all children over the age of seven. It made minor savings at best, and was, as the labor education spokesman said, the meanest and most unworthy thing the country had seen in decades. Ending the subsidy was so unpopular that people would shout, Thatcher, milk snatcher, when they saw her in the streets. Along with other cuts to the education budget, it so angered the sector that Oxford University refused to give the then Prime Minister an honorary degree in 1985. Even today, mentioning the dreaded poll tax can send a shiver down conservative MPs' spines. A 1989 change to local council tax rates, it swapped taxation on a property's rental value for taxation on the number of adults living there. But, as ThoughtCo explains, the details don't really matter. What matters is that the tax generally drove down taxes for the rich, while hiking them up for everyone else. As George H.W. Bush could tell you, new taxes are a pretty guaranteed way to get your voters to turn on you. In Thatcher's case, they didn't just turn on her, they rioted. There were ominous rumblings even in the planning stages. Cabinet memos exist from the year before the tax was rolled out, advising that resistance was growing. Yet Thatcher not only plowed on, she publicly owned the policy. She forced it onto Scotland first in 1989, triggering mass civil disobedience. But rather than be deterred, she then imposed the new tax on England and Wales the following year. The results spoke for themselves. In London, a mass protest devolved into the largest riot the capital had seen in 100 years. Across the country, people refused to pay. The tax was so destabilizing that Thatcher was begged to withdraw it. But she was too stubborn, so her party instead deposed her in a leadership contest ending her premiership. The hated tax wasn't ended until John Major became Prime Minister in 1991. Margaret Thatcher vocally supported Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. There are some sentences so auto-satirical that it's impossible to parody them. Margaret Thatcher's comment to Augusto Pinochet in 1998 
is one such example. Before news cameras, the by then retired Prime Minister firmly told the ex-Chilean dictator, quote, It was you who brought democracy to Chile. That's a definition of the word democracy that apparently involves overthrowing the elected government in a coup, ruling as a military strongman for 18 years, and murdering over 3,000 dissidents while torturing 40,000 more. But then everything about Thatcher's relationship with Pinochet was absurd. As a New Yorker details, Britain had previously suspended arms sales to Chile following the 1973 coup, which saw thousands arrested and herded into makeshift torture centers. The moment Thatcher came to power, she restarted the arms sales, apparently more impressed with Pinochet's anti-communist credentials than his wanton murder of civilians. When the ex-dictator was held in London on an international arrest warrant in 1998, She not only made speeches in support of freeing him, she also visited him to share glasses of scotch. The official line from Thatcher's supporters is that she was grateful for Chile's clandestine help during the Falklands War. But since that war took place years after arms sales were restarted, it seemed more likely that Thatcher just, um, liked hanging out with a blood-stained tyrant. Thatcher famously once remarked, I hate feminism. It is poison. And boy, does that quote ever sum up her attitude toward other women. Although Britain's first female prime minister is regarded as a trailblazer and, for that reason, considered a feminist hero in some quarters, the reality is that Thatcher didn't just pull the ladder up after her, but chopped it up with an axe, set fire to it, and then used the flaming wreckage to firebomb all those trying to follow in her footsteps. As The Guardian details, Thatcher had an almost pathological aversion to promoting other women into positions of power. Never mind that she'd been given the opportunity to prove herself in Ted Heath's government. During her 11 years as premier, Thatcher promoted only a single woman into the cabinet. Conservative politician Edwina Curry once remarked, she quote, would see male MPs who came into politics after I had and who were no better than me being promoted over my head. Thatcher's anti-feminist legacy was on display outside number 10, too. She claimed the battle for women's rights had been, quote, largely won, and then spearheaded policies which disproportionately affected millions of working mothers across Britain. It's one thing to smash the glass ceiling, it's another entirely to then replace it with reinforced steel. Margaret Thatcher supported the homophobic Section 28. One of the most darkly amusing things about watching an insecure majority at work is the way its members go out of their way to act like they're the ones being oppressed. So it was Thatcher's conservative government and Section 28. In 1983, a British publisher puts out the first English-language edition of the Danish children's book, Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin, which posited the incredible notion that gay men could not just live together, but actually be happy. Such a clearly horrific thought sparked a moral panic that culminated in 1988 with Section 28. As the BBC explains, Section 28 prohibited the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. 
Suddenly, any teacher who spoke about LGBT people in a non-negative light could lose their jobs. Per Thatcher, quote, Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Because it's not like that statement could unleash a wave of homophobic bullying against LGBT children, right? Predictably, that's exactly what happened. Kids who grew up LGBT in the UK between 1988 and 2003, when the Labour government scrapped the law, were vulnerable to homophobic abuse and zero help from authority figures. In the end, Thatcher's policy cheated far more children of a sound start than any number of harmless books could have ever hoped to. Margaret Thatcher supported the Khmer Rouge's right to rule Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge are the genocidal maniacs all other genocidal maniacs have nightmares about. Under leader Pol Pot, they instituted Year Zero in Cambodia, a series of mass killings that wiped out around 2.2 million people, nearly a quarter of the entire population. The only reason the genocide stopped was because communist Vietnam invaded and occupied the country, removing Pol Pot from power. Whatever you think of communist Vietnam, the Khmer Rouge were clearly the bad guys here, but not for those who'd grown up with a Cold War mentality. After Pol Pot's fall, Cambodia's UN seat was meant to go to the new government, but Thatcher, along with the US and China, insisted on keeping the seat for the Khmer Rouge. Not only that, but London provided military training to the remnants of the Khmer Rouge still fighting an insurgency in Cambodia's jungles. The equation seems to have been communists equal bad, genocidal maniacs who are also communists but nonetheless fighting those first communists equal obviously the good guys. Remarkably, this policy of helping Pol Pot's goons outlasted even Thatcher. It wasn't ended until the major government in 1992. Margaret Thatcher had a hugely complicated history with apartheid. During the years of white supremacist rule and the system of apartheid, South Africa was a pariah on the international stage. This included in London, where Thatcher was famously appalled by Pretoria's racist policies and destabilization of other African nations. But even though Thatcher was an anti-racist who pressured South African leader P.W. Botha to change his regime, she also made some very controversial decisions and comments on apartheid that haunt her legacy to this day. The headline comment, according to Time, is the one where she accused Nelson Mandela's ANC of being terrorists. But it was her actions that were much more troubling. At a time when South Africa was being isolated globally, Thatcher refused to implement sanctions against the regime. Her allies say this was so Britain would continue to have leverage over Bota. Her critics, such as The Guardian, note that Thatcher's husband, Dennis, had business interests in the country that would have been damaged by sanctions. It's likely no coincidence that the early 1980s were the time when members of the official Federation of Conservative Students were pictured wearing stickers that read, Hang Mandela. When David Cameron became conservative leader in 2006, he apologized for the way his party had treated the issue of apartheid under Thatcher, 
no matter what the Iron Lady's personal convictions had been. Margaret Thatcher's treatment of hunger strikers made the troubles worse. In the 1980s, Northern Ireland was in the grip of something known as the Troubles, a 30-year guerrilla war between mostly Protestants and lo Protestant loyalists and mostly Catholic Republicans that killed around 4,000 people. While those living in other nations tended to see the conflict as political war, Thatcher's government refused to classify captured IRA members as anything but common criminals. This seemingly minor distinction came to an ugly head in 1981. That year, IRA members interned in the Mays prison began a hunger strike after having their special status revoked. Thatcher refused to listen to them. The follow-up from that refusal would last years. Margaret Thatcher's government oversaw a blood scandal that killed thousands. In the 1970s, the UK was suffering from a shortage of blood transfusions, so the government began buying it in from abroad, notably from America. Unfortunately, they opted for the cheapest stuff from Arkansas prisons and high-risk people. As a result, Britain was slowly deluged with blood contaminated by both hepatitis and HIV. Although Thatcher's government wasn't in power when the blood was first bought, they were in power when the first alarming evidence emerged that this imported blood was killing thousands of vulnerable Britons. So what did they do? Why, refused to believe the evidence, and then covered it up, of course. The contaminated blood scandal went all the way from individual doctors up to those in the highest levels of power. Some doctors gave potentially infected blood to patients without telling them of the risks. While Thatcher's cabinet scrambled to limit any compensation, the government might be forced to pay out. And while that covers most of the items in this story, that doesn't even mention the miners. And I don't have a good thorough knowledge and, and uh, understanding of all the history around the miners' strike and Margaret Thatcher's uh, failure to support people that were losing jobs, and destruction of the social safety net. It's one of the areas in which Margaret Thatcher had major similarities with Ronald Reagan's um, presidency in the U.S. is the destruction of the social safety net. And most likely, Margaret Thatcher's destruction of the social safety net in the U.K. had a bigger impact than Reagan's, largely because the U.K. likely had a stronger safety net to begin with. Um, so those are a few of the reasons why so many have still have hatred for Margaret Thatcher. Here is King Mental with Margaret Thatcher is dead. <laughs>
wrap up the songs for the margaret thatcher topic uh however with a few words we're going to hear a little bit from margaret thatcher and then that's going to roll into a billy bragg song called thatcherites today in spite of many difficulties and with so much more to be done britain has regained her confidence and self-respect what i would like to share with you for a few final moments is a vision of the things that matter most to me. Unemployment is a tragedy, not only for those who are out of a job, but for their families, friends, and for every person who is desperately worried, and rightly, that many who want to work can't. The plight of the unemployed will be at the forefront of our minds. I won't promise what I can't deliver, but I promise you this. We will work with unremitting energy that you may work. In Britain today, there's no room for out-of-date distinctions of class or creed. It doesn't matter who you are or who your father is or where you come from. What I'm offering can be put very simply. I offer the certainty of liberty and the chance of property ownership. And more than just a chance. That people should be able to own their own homes is deep at the heart of conservative philosophy. What earthly use is it that families should have a millionth share in some nationalized industry which is indifferent to their needs and wishes? How much more important that they should have something which they own and which can be passed on to their children? I believe in such general ownership. Never mind about public ownership. In practice, that gives nobody anything. But personal ownership, that rightly rewards the efforts of ordinary people. My hope for the future of all our people 
is that they should enjoy liberty and property. Their liberty is safe in conservative hands. That they should acquire property, which brings with it security and independence, is the very essence of what I'm in politics to accomplish. I passionately believe that in a free society, there is much of value to be handed on from one generation to the next. And uh, so, yeah, I can tell you that my great inspiration in my politics was Margaret Thatcher. Were it not for her, I probably wouldn't be a socialist. Yes, Thatcher writes by night, lend an ear, lend an ear. Yes, Thatcher writes by night, lend an ear. Yes, Thatcher writes by night, your faults I will proclaim. Your doctrines I must blame, you will hear, you will hear. Your doctrines I must blame, you will hear. You privatise away, what is ours, what is ours. You privatise away what is ours You privatise away And then you make us pay I will take it back someday Mark my words, mark my words We'll take it back someday Mark my words You plagiarise my name Lend an ear, lend an ear You plagiarise my name Lend an ear You Change that until Margaret Thatcher came along, and she uh, decided that um, it would be better to have uh, to pay less taxes. So she uh, she began to uh, take apart the welfare state and that provision, and the government owned the coal mines. And although there was uh, plenty of coal under our country, she began to close them down. So they went on strike, and uh, really that the strike became a defence of that welfare state of those ideals of uh, uh, um, collective responsibility and collective provision. And as a singer-songwriter who'd grown up listening to Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie and The, and the Clash, it, it seemed to me that my place was to be, you know, there on the picket line playing songs. And it was interesting, it was a bit of an education for me, because I didn't, like I said, I didn't go to college, so I didn't know a huge amount about socialism. So it was a very steep learning curve. They wanted to know why this pop singer from London had come up to, to the coal fields sitting up late at night on sofas with people, drinking cups of tea, smoking cigarettes, talking about politics. And that will bring us to our artist of the episode. The artist of the episode for this episode is Crass. Here is an excerpt from a piece published at daily.bandcamp.com. Written by John Gentile. Quote, We were two very pissed off persons. Steve was a very young pissed off person. And I was a getting old pissed off person. We sort of met on the pissed offness, really. Penny Rimbo, drummer, producer, and co-founder of Crass, is talking about how he, along with vocalist Steve Ignorant, formed a group that is now considered one of the most influential punk bands of all time. Anarcho-punk, peace-punk, crust-punk, black-and-white stencil art, dissing the clash, being punks and being vegan, being punks and wearing all black, 
If you can name it, you can probably trace it back to Crass. At first, we didn't have any ambitions, and we certainly didn't think Crass would become what it did, he continues. Rimbo is sitting at his beat-up old wooden desk in Dial House, the 16th-century farm cottage in Essex, England, which he has preserved as a sort of arts-free space since the late 1960s, and which served as Crass's home base from 1977 until the group disbanded in 1984. From his suburban home in Norfolk, Steve Ignorant adds, quote, I was working in a hospital and I went to see The Clash. At the gig, Joe Strummer said, if you think you can do better, then start your own band. So I said, yeah, I will. Ignorant decided to take a trip over to Dial House where he knew a former hippie who was engaged in what would now be called performance art. He found Rimbaud madly typing away on what would become Christ's Reality Asylum, a stridently political, blasphemous, totally wigged out piece that would form the core identity of Crass. I said, I'm thinking of starting a band, Ignorant remembers. Penny said, I've got a drum kit. I'll play drums if you like. And that's how it started. Crass's debut, The Feeding of the 5,000, is an incendiary record. In fact, it's so freaky that the pressing plant workers who manufactured the first run refused to press the first track, Asylum, adapted from Rimbo's similarly named written work. The track, a sonic sound clash spoken word piece, features vocalist Libertine ranting off sacrilegious lines such as, Down now from your cross, down now from your papal heights, from that churlish suicide, petulant child. At the time, I found asylum harsh and ugly in its expression, but powerful for that, says Libertine. It was saying something I felt needed saying about the repressive nature of religion and how cruelly it has affected women's lives over the centuries. In fact, the track struck such a chord that it caused the police to visit Dial House, as Ignorant recalls. The police had come in because some kid got a copy of it and his mum heard it and said, this is disgusting. But when the police came, it was all very civilized. We gave them tea and sandwiches. They were going through our record collection. I bet you won't find any Tchaikovsky in here. Ha ha ha. Oh, um, here it is. And that was just the first track. Across the album's two sides, Crass essentially created the concept of anarcho-punk. Do they owe us a living? Ignorant details the ways a capitalist society seeks to destroy anything that doesn't fit into its rigid plan. On They've Got a Bomb, they address the very real danger of the nuclear war, complete with a heart-stopping 17 seconds of silence wedged in between the sonic bombast, representing atomic death. Fight War Not Wars contains no other lyrics except for the title. On Punk is Dead, the band not only takes what might be the first ever We're More Punk Than You shots at the Sex Pistols and The Clash, they also explain that punk and anarchism can be so much more than tabloid fodder. Quote, We thought something was really happening when the pistols in that crew started walking the walk, but they never started talking the talk, Rimbo says. They might have had the odd political point, but at the core, it was self-interest. It was very good rock and roll. There's no question about that. But they didn't have anything to follow through with. 
They were all contradicting themselves, not coming up with the promises. The Clash were saying DIY and then signing to CBS. Well, DIY doesn't actually spell CBS, so we felt cheated. We thought, you can fuck people over, but we're not. We're going to make promises and keep them. To match the explosive music, Voucher, Crass's artist, created the iconic black-and-white collage stencil style that is still replicated across punk and hardcore today. Arguably, Crass was the first punk band to make the argument that the visual and informational aspect was as important as the sonic component. Crass was always multimedia, using different approaches to communicate, Voucher says. The driving force behind how I work is to reach what is inside. I might have a vague idea for something, but I don't usually know what I'm trying to say at first. It's a feeling I'm aiming at. What I'm trying to express seems to appear much later. Here is the song Demoncrats from Crass and the album Stations of the Cross. He, nor master, nor lord, no crown to wear, no cross to bear in stations. I am not he, nor shall be, warlord of nations. These heroes have run before me, now dead upon the flesh pile, see, waiting for their promised resurrection. There is none, nothing but the marker, crown or cross, in stone upon these graves. Promise of the ribbon was all it took, where only the strap would leave its mark. Upon these slaves. What flag to thrust into this flesh? Rag, bandage, mop in their flowing death. Taken aside, they were pointed away for God, queen and country. Now in silence they lie. They ran beside these masters, children of sorrow, as slaves to that trilogy. They had no future. They believed in democracy, freedom of speech. Yet dead on the flesh piles, I hear no breath. Whisper of faith from those who died for some others' privilege. Out from your palaces, princes and queens. Out from your churches, you clergy and Christs. I'll neither live nor die for your dreams. I'll make no subscription to your paradise. 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 I'
They were a tragedy, weren't they? It was a terrible evening. Dreadful as we saw those scenes on television and saw how marvelous our police were. The pattern of rioting gradually intensified with mounting anger at the deaths of the two teenagers killed by an army Land Rover. I now realize every time I see a tragedy in the paper, we're lucky. Our son was restored to us, and I know how anyone feels if their son is missing. A Northern Ireland minister was asked if he believed the army was to blame. I very much regret, as I'm sure everybody does, the deaths of the two teenagers uh, in Londonderry last night. It has to be said that some 250 people get killed on the roads in this province every year. And of course, uh, when a riot takes place, there's much more risk of a road accident than at any other time. And then you know there are some terrible cruelties and personal tragedies in life. And every day I look in the papers and read them, I know the agony they are going through. And Mark knows too.
And that was the track 1984 from Christ, the album. The band put a lot of time and effort into developing and creating this album. And just weeks before the album was scheduled to be released, the Falklands War erupted. Steve Ignorant says, quote, I think that was meant to be it, the ultimate crass release. And then after that, the Falklands War starts. Just when I'm going to get out, they get me back in. To a degree, the band was embarrassed that they hadn't addressed a major event like the Falklands War on a record they spent almost a year making. Rimbo says, I don't think we were ever complacent, but with Christ, we were concentrating on creating a beautiful album. And it was in a lovely box and it was beautifully designed, but that was a luxury we couldn't afford. We realized that what Thatcher did was only a small taste of what would come over the next 20, 30, and 40 years. And we have seen that occur under the guise of, quote, intervention, which has become the classic American modus operandi. We can bomb the fuck all out of where the fuck we like because we're bringing democracy to the world. For their next release, Crass decided they had to be more immediate. Around then, we started getting classified information from grunts and sailors who were actually in the service. What the hell do you do with classified information? Rimbo recalls. That is a serious offense. Then, we pulled our greatest trick ever. Using the classified information they had received, the band crafted a recording which appeared to be a conversation between Thatcher and Reagan discussing the sinking of the Sheffield and the General Belgrano, ships involved in the Falklands conflict. The band then sent the tapes to the British press anonymously, expecting chaos to ensue. Surely such a hot item would be a major stop-the-presses event. After we sent it to the press world, it completely disappeared, and we heard nothing, Rimbaud says. And then four or five months later, it appeared in the Pentagon and was described by them as being a KGB operation to undermine American power. They were saying it could lead to World War III. We could sit here and say we did a tape and now it's being put forward as this thing, which is very funny in one respect, but it's not very funny in another. So we were always in this ambiguity. Eventually, someone informed the press that the culprits behind the scam were, indeed, crass. To this day, the band doesn't know who leaked that info, though by this time their phones were being tapped by the police and possibly other third parties. The Observer got in touch with the band and through a series of negotiations, Rimbaud agreed to admit that they created the tapes. If the Observer published the entire transcript of the tape on its front page. To Rimbaud's surprise, the paper did indeed publish the entire transcript, which included classified information previously only known to the British government. Then the shit really hit the fan, Rimbaud says. All sorts of people were getting in touch with us, including the KGB. This is sheep farming in the Falklands. The cost of the Falcons operation came... Think she is responsible in the final analysis for the conduct of her government that uh, she should be considering an early resignation. With regard to resi resignation, no. Now is the time to strengthen resolution. We are interrupting this program to make a special announcement. 
At four o'clock this morning, British Standard Time, Britain's Premier, Margaret Thatcher, called an emergency summit meeting with the Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington, in the Royal Room of 10 Downing Street. A five o'clock deadline had been set to find a solution to the increasingly tense situation in the Parliament. Mrs. Thatcher was said to be moist with anticipation as Lord Carrington entered the door, nervously holding the knife. The eyes of the nation were on Mrs. Thatcher as she confidently slipped her hand into her brief. She knew that the little red button, now at her fingertips, could unleash an orgy of physical combat. As she commanded Lord Carrington to make an entry, she knew that she would soon feel the weight of power on her shoulders. She had always covered up in the past, but the imminent possibility of close combat obliged her to reveal all. After running through the usual preliminaries, Lord Carrington felt abreast of the situation, and Mrs. Thatcher was delighted to show him the little red button and demonstrate its usage, most notably its connection to the hotline receiver. To enable him to get on top of the job, Lord Carrington was ordered to get seriously stuck in, and at all costs, because of the gravity of the situation, to avoid simply running through the motions. Nervously, he touched the little red button, but, as Mrs. Thatcher excitedly pushed it towards him, his finger slipped, and he missed the mark, leaving the Premier feeling well browned off. However, not to be frustrated by the weakness of others, Mrs. Thatcher determined to finish the job herself, and, having dismissed the unfortunate moment, grabbed the hotline telephone and put the receiver to its devilish work. Within seconds, the hotline was a frenzy of activity. After years of anticipation, Mrs. Thatcher's forces were heading towards a climax, sliding apprehensively towards endless oceans, an unstoppable power breaking through the bridle. This was her finest moment, and at its peak, she cried, England expects every man to do his best. I know nothing of failure. We are going to win.
exceeded by a thousand times the explosive force of any weapon ever made before. Instead of one nuclear weapon, there are now over 50,000, more than a million times the explosive power of the Hiroshima bomb. Four tons of high explosive for each of the 4,000 million men, women and children on this planet. Those who are obedient will stay put doubtless stiffened in their resolve by the knowledge that if they flee, no authority elsewhere will give them food or shelter.
And wrapping up our set of crass tracks, that was Bumhuler from the album Christ the Album. War on Women have a new album out. It is called Wonderful Hell. And this song is This Stolen Land. Thank you. 
And that will just about wrap up this episode of Polyrical. Remember, you can follow Polyrical on Twitter, at Polyrical, and you'll find out all the back episodes at Polyrical.com. You'll also be able to hear those and my other podcast playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Here is the Sexy Wild East from their album Ranting and Raving. Donald Trump is an arsehole. Thanks for listening. <laughs>